0: Tim Spanberg here, lead pastor. So glad to be with you, even if it's on video only. This morning we are concluding our series in 1 John, God is Love. And so uh, I'm going to read our text in a minute. 1 John 5, verses 6 through 13 is what I'm going to read for us. So if you've got a Bible, turn there, 1 John chapter 5. But while you're turning to your Bibles, really quick, our next series is coming up, and our next series we're going to call Jesus Speaks for Himself. It is a series on the I Am statements of Jesus through the Gospel of John, because I hear a lot of people, sometimes me included, who speak on behalf of Jesus all the time, claim Jesus says things, and really I want to know, what did, what did Jesus actually say? So that's where we're headed next Starting with, "I am the bread of life next Sunday," so we're looking forward to that. Hope you'll be back, but for now, First John chapter five, verses 6 through 13, we've got to finish up this series. So here now, the word of the Lord. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify the spirits, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God, that he is born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning his son. And this is the testimony. That God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This is God's Word. Whoever has the Son has life. Those are John's parting words in First John, and I've been thinking about those words all week. To have Jesus is to have life. And I know the truth of that statement. That truth lives in my bones. But it's clear in this book, and something we haven't talked much about in this series, is that there are Christians wavering on that truth, that whoever has Jesus has life. And so John says, at the end of this letter, why he's written it. And he says, I write these things to you so that you may know you have eternal life. Which means, there are some who are beginning to question, if I have Jesus, do I have life? Is Jesus who he said he is? And John has written a letter to confirm for them that Jesus is who he said. But that raises the question, why? Why? Why are people in this Christian community that John writes to beginning to lose their confidence and their hope and their knowledge that to have Jesus is to have life? Well, today we're ending our series in the book of 1 John. And we're going to end it by what John has been saying throughout this book, which is really to highlight this theme of to have Jesus is to have life. And John recognizes sometimes we can lose confidence in that truth. So, whether you're not a Christian who has never tasted the life of Jesus, or you're a Christian wavering in the the confidence of that statement, or you're a Christian who believes it fully and just bring it on, give me more. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And and I want to work through what John has said and close out our series with three ideas. First... Why we sometimes begin to lose confidence in the truth of Jesus. Why we need to know uh, what we need to know about Jesus to give us confidence. And how we know, we know. So why we need to know what we need to know and how we can know that we know the truth that Jesus has life for us. So first, why do we sometimes begin to have our confidence in the truth of Jesus shaken now, this document that we have, this letter of First John, it's, it's maybe a sermon, it might be a letter, but it's written to a group of churches in Asia. And church tradition holds that John served these churches well into 80 years old. So he served these churches as a pastor for most of his life. Now he writes at the end of his life as, as a father to children. That's why he's called them his children throughout this book. But he writes them because he's concerned for them. Somehow their confidence in the truth of Jesus has been shaken. So why? And we don't know precisely because we're only listening into one side of the conversation. But it is clear that a large faction of Christians who are part of these churches have now left those churches, and the mass exodus of people from these churches has caused great doubt to arise in these communities. And we can pick up that this is the case in chapter 2, verse 19. John writes this. He says, they, a group of people, they went out from us... But they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, and it has become plain that they are not of us. So John says, a group of Christians have left this church, or people who claim to be Christians, who are part of this community, have now left this community. And anyone who's ever been a part of a, a church split, or where a lot of people leave a church community, you know if you've been through an event like that, it it will rock your faith. It will shake your confidence. And much of my pastoral ministry has been sitting with Christian people who have been through an experience where lots of people have left a church, and it's rocked their faith. I can remember sitting with one Christian leader I have a lot of respect for. She's a gifted leader, a mature Christian, someone I have learned a lot from and, and she had to leave a church because that church's leadership community had harmed her. And through deception and, and showing indif- uh, indifference to the pain they had caused her, she ended up leaving the church. And as she was beginning to look for a new community to be a part of, because she was a deeply committed Christian, she just said to me and another friend when she was processing this that she just didn't want to go to church anymore. That walking into church was a painful experience. And it's not hard for me to imagine John sitting with these Christians in 1 John who have watched many of their fellow people leave, and that's shaken their confidence in the truth of Jesus. But before we go further down that pastoral path, and we will, it's worth asking, well, why did they leave? What's, What's divided this church community? And throughout 1 John, a couple of themes are highlight, highlighted again and again for John about probably why these, these people left. And again, we don't know exactly because we're listening in on one side of the conversation, but we can have a pretty good guess that this church division was over two things. First, the people who had left this church had denied Christian truth. They had left parts of Christian orthodoxy. So for example, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, we read, John writes, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So we should be asking, well, who's saying that they have no sin? Well, most likely the people who had left the church. They had come up with a theology that says we no longer have any sin. Now, we don't precisely know what it means that they... Claim to have no sin. Maybe it's like our day today. To talk about sin is considered regressive and harmful. And the doctrine of sin should be rejected by people. Or maybe they thought once you get further enough into the Christian life, then you become perfect and you stop sinning. Whatever it it was, their theology, it had left the Christian Orthodox teaching that we're all sinners saved by grace. And they embraced some other teaching. And so now they have left and when, when Christians you know and love or people who are part of your church community that you know and love suddenly reject Christian truth, that can shake your confidence. In the summer of 2020, during the height of COVID, and I was working mostly from home, I got rid of a bunch of my books that were in my basement. Now, the reason I got rid of a bunch of books was not because I had too many. That's impossible. You can never have too many books. But the reason I got rid of some books is some of those books were written by Christian leaders that had now been exposed that they should never have written a book on theology or pastoral ministry because their own life was deeply at odds with the Christian truth and witness. They had done things, practiced things, now believed things that were out of line with the gospel, And that was a disorienting experience for me to see well-known pastors now rejecting basic tenets of the faith or when confronted with sin, refusing to repent. And th- that was a, a disorienting, shaking of confidence experience for me, I'm sure for many of you, because those leaders were very well known. They had rejected the truth, lived for themselves, and watching that, Shook my confidence. So it's not hard to imagine why John and this community of people in Asia, where lots of people had left apparently claiming they no longer were sinners and had a number of other doctrines they now rejected, it wouldn't be hard to imagine the people left behind in the church wondering is there really life with Jesus? Is that where eternal life is? Whoever has life or whoever has Jesus has life, is that still? True, their, sh- their confidence would have been shaken. So that's one reason why the church is dividing. But there's a second reason, which is that the people who have left also apparently rejected love. They weren't very loving. Again, we don't precisely know how this played out. But listen again to 1 John 2, verse 9, where John says, Whoever says he is in the lights and hates his brother is still in darkness. Which again should raise the question, well, who's claiming to be in the light and hating their brother? And most likely it's the people who left this community who still claim to some extent be a Christian, but claim to be in the light, but were hating the people that they had left behind. Nothing, in my humble opinion, nothing will shake your confidence or my confidence more than a Christian who treats you with hatred Anger, indifference. One of the moments that has most shaped my life as, as a pastor and a church leader is where I, I went to confront a, a pastor who had, who had lied. And I caught him in the lie, and I wanted to approach him and confront him with that. He was a senior pastor, so this was a terrifying proposition for me. But I was pretty, I was pretty hopeful that once I just humbly laid out, hey, this is this is what I saw, this is what happened, that that he would repent, that it would be okay. But that is not what happened. As the conversation began, there was no disagreement that deception, a lie, had taken place. Uh, he acknowledged that, but when when we pressed into repentance, he refused to acknowledge any sorrow, repentance, or desire to go and speak to the people. Who he had been dishonest with, and so the conversation escalated, passionate anger, until finally I said, in probably not the most loving terms, "You have hurt people that you've lied to," and I'll never forget his response: "I don't care." Now, in fairness to him, as we calmed down a few minutes later. He said, no, no, I do care. I, I don't want to hurt people. But in fairness to me, after that conversation, he never repented. He never went to the people that he had been dishonest with. And even when he was confronted by the person he had been dishonest to, he still refused any acknowledgement of guilt. And that, that moment shook my faith in incredibly profound ways that I didn't understand for a long time. And I share that not because I have any interest in airing out the dirty laundry of the church, but because my assumption is every person in this room most likely has had an experience with a Christian that's much like that. Maybe it was a leader, a Christian leader, a pastor, who you brought a sin issue to to them and they just did not love in response. It's a disorienting experience. And so when I read this letter of 1 John and I read John saying, there are people going around saying, I'm in the light and then hating their brother, that that would have have shaken their faith. The people of the Christian, this church that are left behind, this would have, have rocked them to their core. So we shouldn't be surprised that John writes to say, I want to reassure you, whoever has Jesus has life. Don't look at anything else in this world but Him. If you have Him, you have life. So point one, why do we need reassure? why do we need to know the truth of Jesus? Well it's because this world can rock our faith. Uh, the actions or, or realities of other Christians can sometimes shake our confidence. So that's point one. But then, okay, so what do we need to know? What, is, what has John been saying to try to give us confidence of the truth of Jesus? And here we have some of the most confusing verses in the Bible. Verses 6 through 8 in chapter 5. John writes, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Does that clear it up? And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirits, the water, and the blood. These three agree. What is going on in those verses? Well, John is saying the spirits, the water, and the blood testify to the truth of Jesus. So what, how did, what does it mean Jesus came by water? What does it mean he came by blood? And what does it mean he came by the Spirit? Well, let's take each in turn. First, what does it mean Jesus came by water? The best explanation I've heard of this from a commentator on this text is it's a reference to the baptism of Jesus. That Jesus' ministry was preceded by John the Baptist, who prepared the hearts of Israel for the coming of the Messiah. But then Jesus himself was baptized, and it's important to remember that when Jesus was baptized, it was an incredibly important moment. It's also important to note John, who's writing 1 John in the Gospels, was present at Jesus' baptism. He saw it. So when he says, Jesus came by water by his baptism, he witnessed that Baptism And what happens at Jesus' baptism? When He was baptized, God the Father spoke over Jesus and said, This is my Son, whom I love. In Him I am well pleased. And so in the baptism of Jesus, we see the love of the Father for the Son. Now this can get into some very complex theology. Because this is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Son. And spirit. And while the Trinity is very complex, a very complex doctrine, it is one of the most reassuring pieces of doctrine in the scriptures. That what Jesus' baptism, his coming by water, reveals to us is the Trinitarian community of love. The Father loves the Son. This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus loves the Father. And so that means that the Christian concept of God, and again, this is very complicated. I'll keep it very simple. The Christian concept of God is a community of three uh, uh, persons in one being in perfect harmony and love with one another. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Spirit loves the Father and the Son. That is how the Trinity works. And I love how Michael Reeves, in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, talks about this implication for you and I, that at the center of the universe is a God of love. He writes, This God is the very opposite of greedy, hungry, selfish emptiness. In His self-giving, He naturally pours forth life and goodness. So the next time you look up at the sun, moon, and stars and wonder, remember... They are there because God loves, because the, father loves, the Father's love for the Son burst out that it might be enjoyed by many. And they remain there only because God does not stop loving. He is an attentive Father who numbers every hair on our heads, for whom the fall of every sparrow matters. And out of love He upholds all things through His Son and breathes out natural life on all through His Spirit. It was a long quote, but at the middle, he says, the Father's love for the Son burst out that it might be enjoyed by many, which is saying that the doctrine of creation, why God created, why are you here? Right? Why am I here? Why do we exist? Well, if there's a Trinity, if that's who God is, it means there was a community of love that burst out and created a world so that love could be shared with all of its creations. And that's what it means. Jesus came by the water. The baptism of Jesus reveals to us this Trinitarian community of love. And what we've been saying through this whole series, God is love. right? The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. And it should be reassuring to us that we exist to know, to participate in, and to experience the love of the center of the universe, the love of God. To know it, to taste it. It's why Jesus came, and when he came by water, we saw for the first time this Trinitarian community of love. So that's what it means Jesus came by water. He was baptized. But second, what does it mean that Jesus came by blood? Well, I wish I was a good builder, that I was good at building things. And I'm not. That's just the truth. And so uh, a couple of weeks ago, someone was, uh, a couple of people were at our house building something. Uh, our house needed something done to it. So there are people there. They're, they're planning out how to build uh, what needed to be built. And as they're, they're talking it out, they would occasionally look over at me and be like, hey, what do you think? And seeking my input. And it's like, this should be clear that I have no contribution to make to this conversation whatsoever. And if I did make a comp- contribution, it would probably only make things Worse, And yet I appreciated that they let me into the conversation. But ultimately, I'm not equipped to be in a conversation about building anything, because I'm not gifted at that. And so a moment ago, I just said, the, the center of the universe is a Trinitarian God of love. And it wants to invite us into that community of love. But you and I are not equipped for that conversation at all. We are not beings of perfect self-giving, self-sacrificial love, and so when the Trinity begins to invite us into that place of knowing God's love, His self-denying, self-sacrificial love, we just know I'm not equipped for that conversation. I'm not gifted. I should not be here. That my own heart and mind is is selfish to the core it's broken the idea that i could just enter into this community of love is unrealistic and so we have a problem we do not belong with a god who is love we we cannot be a part of that conversation because we are not love i am not love and so we have a problem the problem is this trinity invites us and creates a world of love for us to share in but we are broken, selfish, self-centered creatures. So how are we going to get into that conversation? And the answer is the blood, the cross, Jesus. And John has mentioned the blood, the cross, several times throughout this letter. But I want to go back to where we started, 1 John 1, 1.9, where John says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I talked about this in the very first sermon, but we probably all forgot. So, so remember, it's, it's normal for us to hear, God is faithful and will forgive you. Right? That's normal. God's faithful. He forgives. But to hear, justice must be done. God will forgive. Is a strange statement. But remember why John adds that word. He adds that word, just. Because John knows when you and I get closer to the, to the love of God... The more we know that, the more we we see, I have no place in that conversation. We see Jesus on the cross forgiving the people who murdered him while they were murdering him. Some of us, me included, have a hard time forgiving things that were decades old. And yet here's Jesus quick to forgive. God is... Love, And the nearer we get to that love, the more our own anger, bitterness, envy, jealousy comes out. That if you get near to this Jesus, you will find how shallow your love is compared to His. And you begin to think, I don't belong with Him. And that's the whole point of the blood. And why John includes the word just. That... Jesus, in going on to the cross, in bleeding out for our sins, covers my envy and jealousy and brokenness and lack of forgiveness. He covers those things, forgives those things, so much so that because the price for my sin has been paid, it would be unjust for God to exclude me from His conversation of love because the price of my lack of love has been paid through Jesus, which means I get to, to get invited right into that conversation. Jesus came by the blood. Is that reassuring to you? right, John writes to these people, their faith has been shaken. He remembers, he reminds them, listen, Jesus was baptized. He broke into this world to invite you into his community of love. And even though you're not worthy of that community, He gave His life to make you worthy. This is good. News, it should be reassuring to us the confidence, the beauty of the truth. Whoever has Jesus has life. Then third, what does it mean that the Spirit testifies to Jesus? And, And according to John, and especially in his gospel... The way we come to believe Jesus is the Son of God is through the Spirit's work on our heart. And so the reason why I believe whoever has Jesus has life in my bones is because that's the Spirit's witness to me. It's His work giving witness to the truth of Jesus. But now we're back to where we started. Whoever has Jesus has life, has forgiveness, has love. So... How do we grow in that experience of that life, in that truth? How do we know we know? So John gives us a couple of action items as we close our series, as he closes his book. If you want to grow in your experience of the love of God and of an experience and practices that will increase your confidence in the truth of Jesus, you need to pray. And you need to love. Now, right after John mentions uh, why he wrote this book, I want you to know that you have eternal life. He goes on and he says something else next in verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Now this could trip us out because you hear that and you think, oh, I can ask God whatever I want and he's going to give it to me. That seems like it doesn't work that way. Well, John clarifies. He then tells you what to pray for. If you want God to, to grant your request, this is what you should pray for. He goes on, he writes this in verse 16. If anyone sees his brother or sister committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give his brother or sister life. To those who commit sin that do not lead to death. That's a pretty powerful request of prayer. That you see a brother or sister in sin, and your first response is to pray for them. To pray that they would have the life of God. And there are two pretty incredible things about this. First is what's your first reaction when you witness another Christian sin? I have to confess, for me, it's often, it's frustration, it's judgment. Sometimes that leads us to gossip, to slander, to exaggerate the nature of their sin, to dwell on the hurt that they have caused us. But for John, when we see a brother or sister or sin, our our gut reaction should be to pray. Pray, God, it's clear they're not living in your love experiencing the life you have for them. So keep them in that life. Bring them back. And what John is saying is God answers that prayer every time because God keeps those of us who are in Christ all the way to the end. When you see a brother or sister in sin and you pray for them, you can know that God will answer that prayer if you pray for them to have life because, listen, it may not get worked out tomorrow. They may not see the air of their ways a year from now. But God will save them to the end. So pray for that. God will answer that prayer every time. And there might be people in your life who will not hear your correction. You've tried. They will not listen to you. But there is a ministry they can't reject. Your prayers. And I love the way theologian Gerald Sitzer puts this in his book, Love One Another. He writes, Sometimes prayer is the only ministry we can offer our Christian opponents because it's the only ministry they will receive from us. They may reject our welcome, service, encouragement, admonition. They may avoid us altogether, but they cannot spurn our prayers. The effectiveness of prayer does not depend on how well we get along with another person. It depends only on grace and power of God. I want to be at church where our first reaction when we see someone sin is to pray for them. So that's prayer first. Second is, is love. We're to pray to deepen our experience of God and we're also to love. And even to go back to prayer for a minute, one of the things that's been true for me in my own life is when I've prayed for the people who have harmed me inside the church, and I prayed for them, I have found the love of God and the reassurance of my faith come into play, that praying for sinners is so crucial. So that that's one thing, but, but secondly, and this is where we need to close, we called the series God is Love. If you want to deepen in your confidence of your faith, you need to practice love. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, my belief is that the Christian life is a life of ever deepening experience of the love of God. That remember, John writes this letter at the end of his life. He's over eighty years old, most likely, and at the end of his life, he's a father of the faith, and he sits down and pins these words. So we have come to know, and believe the love God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God. God is love, and. To take up life with God is an increasing experience of that love. So I want to close this series by first inviting those of you who maybe have never come to faith into the experience of the love of God and to speak to those of us who already are Christians. So first, I think one thing Christians and non-Christians can agree on is that love is good and that we need more of it, that the Beatles were right. All you need is love. Love. But here, we all have a problem, Christian and non-Christian, because the world seems short on love. I mean, look at how we treat one another. People who live differently than us, look differently than us, might vote differently than us. Look at how people who get power almost always use it. They use it not to serve and love others, but to get what they want, whether that's your local CEO Uh, strongman power in the world, or sadly, many pastors. And yet, despite all evidence to the contrary, we all want love to be the center of the universe. And to you who don't yet believe in Christ, you want that because that is the true story. God is love. And while there is much evil corrupting this world, the rumors, we all long to be true, that one day evil will be purged, justice will win, and love will reign. Those hopes are real because that world is real. It's the kingdom of God. And it's the thing Jesus said He was bringing into this world. And I would just ask, for those of you who maybe have never made a profession of faith, what's the best explanation of that feeling, that sense, that longing that we all have that at the center of the universe is love? Why is that there in us? I don't know that a world without God makes sense of that feeling. Our world is, as we saw this week, where strongmen bomb their neighbors. It's the survival of the fittest. The weak eat the strong. That's the the story our world puts forth. And yet we all know something's not right with that story. And so if you want a world built on love, that's... That's the Spirit testifying to you about Jesus. That world is true. You want that world because that world is true. So we invite you, consider making that true for you, to to call on Jesus in faith. And that's something I would love to talk to you about after the service. Even though I'm here on video, I'll be in the hall after service. But to the Christians in the room, where I want to end us, is that John writes this letter to reassure Christians of the truth of the gospel. And that's the command he gives over and over again love one another as Christ has loved you, love your brothers and sisters. And so I want to end this series with a couple of thoughts that seem totally contradictory to one another. That on the one hand, what has shaken my faith most in life is the anger, the hatred, The lack of love I've witnessed from within the Christian community, from within the church. And I told you one story from earlier. I don't need to tell you any more. But what I want to say is that if you claim the name of Jesus for yourself, if you are a Christian, the way that you love or don't love your fellow brother and sister can do real damage to their confidence in Jesus. So steward that responsibility well. Pray first. Listen well. Leave a leg of sea of love behind you. So that's the negative thought, but let me give the positive thought, the hopeful thought. That while I have experienced some things in the church that have shaken my confidence, I have also experienced the most incredible, outrageous, generous, outlandish love that can only be explained by the power of the truth of the gospel. We have one one son with special needs in our family, and and as all special needs families know, caring for special needs is incredibly expensive. You need things that insurance might or might not cover, and it's pretty overwhelming. Um, But from the very beginning of our diagnosis, God was very clear, and He said, Tim, I'm going to provide what you need. Trust me. Let me provide. And I can tell you, every major expense we've ever needed for our family has been provided by a brother or sister in Christ. We haven't asked for anything. It's been freely given. Outrageous love and generosity that has reassured and strengthened my faith. And seeing people do that for me has made me just say, I want to be that for others. I want others to experience me and think, I can... I can believe God loves me because I've experienced that from Tim. And isn't that what we all want? So, why I put our first series together, church and pastor, in 1 John. Because I believe God is love, and I believe those who take up life with Him will become people of outrageous, generous, ridiculous love. Whoever has Jesus has life which should mean if there is a people, a church, a community of people who follow Jesus, we should be able to say this, that whoever has Jesus as life, well then, whoever has the church has life. Can we say that? Whether yes or no, let's pursue being a church that can. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us. And that we can be confident seeing John's life, that a life of of knowing and following you leads to a life of ever-deepening experience experience of your love. And so I pray that over every person watching this sermon now, that in their own way, however you need to love them, God, whether it's this moment by your spirit or it's something you're going to orchestrate for them later this week, you would show them your love, and you would give us eyes and ears to see and hear your love for us. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.